Anyway, I'll try to edit that out after the fact. Uh, tonight I'm here with uh, John Kleidzik. Uh We are uh, doing uh, episode number 176 tonight, The School World Order. And uh, sorry about the feed screwing up there, folks. Um, anyway, they had told me to set it that way, and it clearly didn't work properly. So, But, yeah, so this week we had about... 26 inches of snow here in my town in about, uh, what was it, uh, 10 hours. Some places on the mountain getting four feet of snow. It took the snow plows uh, several days. Some people, it took them uh, five days to get power back. Some people still don't have power. The town looked like a tornado hit it after with downed trees, downed poles, um, downed everything all over the place. It was a mess. I tried to get out. You know, I had to stop to get some stuff to go to a Thanksgiving dinner and you know because I delayed leaving an extra 20 30 minutes to get stuff together I didn't I wasn't able to get out so I missed Thanksgiving dinner and then without power uh, barely had any heat going and all for several days so it was pretty it was pretty uh, sucky few days there but uh, we're warm we're back again so uh, yeah, it was pretty miserable to say the least, though. So, John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it, man. Yeah, and you <clears throat> you had reached out to me about your new book published by Chris Milligan over at Trying Day School World Order, and uh, thanks for sending me a copy of that. You autographed it for me. You cite me in your book. I appreciate that. And uh, you know, we're you talk you you get into education. You actually picked up on my work on the uh, Trivium. Do you want to talk about how you came across my work before we dive in? So originally I actually had planned, the book kind of was going to end with the chapter before the, what is the epilogue with the solutions, right? So an alternative curriculum to kind of offset all the technocratic uh, eugenics, you know, the, um, that type of stuff. Um, and so basically, um, Chris was like, you can't just end it like that. That's that, that you're going to terrify people, you know, and they're, they'll probably feel like disempowered. So you need to give them some kind of something they can do about it. And so, um, so I says, okay. And I had, I had remembered, uh, I had come across some of your research in some documentaries. Uh, I think state of mind was one of them and there were some others. Um, and the trivium, I just remembered that as a, as a, as the classical method in general. Um, and, uh, at the time, you know, when I got to the end of the book, um, and I'm kind of skipping ahead here with that. Uh, you know, one of the questions became, it's essentially based on the empirical method. And so he needs some kind of, you know, a priori system, okay? And so, you know, you can, you can find that in the classical method through formal logic and deductive reasoning with a, with a first cause metaphysics and things like that. And so that's essentially um, kind of how I came across your stuff. And I kind of dug into it as I wrote the conclusion. So uh, my degree is in, is in uh, English. I teach English. Um, it's in rhetoric. I have, you know, I teach rhetoric, um, but they, they didn't teach the trivium in the classical method. So, you know, I mean, I had rhetoric, ethos, logos, pathos, um, a lot of deconstructionist stuff, which is the opposite of that as well. It was mainly more of that. Um, but uh, never a lot of formal logic, not grammar in terms of special grammar, linguistics or philology, and then general grammar, uh, vocabulary, right, for, 
for subject research, uh, subject-based research. So um, basically, as I, I, I dug into that and um, has actually changed uh, my, my methodology, my pedagogy in the classroom, I, I do uh, implement more, you know, some formal logic and some, some more special general grammar and teach it from that framework. You, um, do you get into the difference between general and special grammar? Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. So the special grammar is essentially what today we would call linguistics. So it's language specific. It has to do with the way that the, the alphabet or the characters work in syntax. Um, and then there's the general grammar, which would be, it's essentially vocabulary and that's going to be you know, nouns, verbs, uh, and that could be subject specific. So, you know, you have, you have a grammar for ge geography, you have a grammar for mathematics. Um, and so essentially, um, yeah, I, I do, I teach that, you know, and nowadays they, they do discourage teaching what we would call special grammar. Once upon a time, they would have called it philology, right? Which has the, the suffix logos on it, the love of, you know, it wasn't linguistic. Well, linguistic philology is, is more of the study of language itself as in you know it's it's deep origins and going way back more than a specific grammar which deals with the components of language and writing sentences and structure and presenting you know you know proper uh, English you know or the given language that you're dealing with at that time yeah, absolutely. So, right. And so there was a historical component to philology, right? So that you studied the etymology. And so the roots of, you know, the English is basically a German language with a, with a Latin alphabet. You can trace that back to the Paleo Hebrew, you know, the, the, the Phoenician, et cetera. Um, and that would be philology. The linguistics now, which it's the same kind of the same concept, but that's more of the, that's where you start getting into some of the deconstructionist stuff, relativistic stuff. Um, where basically the concept of ling linguistics, Saussure, was that, you know, you, you didn't have to worry too much about the historical etymology or the, uh, you know, the, the growth of the language historically, the way it was used uh, in the historical context, because basically they're just symbols and you can, if you can, you can make meaning out of any number of different symbols, we could make up a language today and we could make meaning with it. And so, so they kind of, what they're, what they're taking out of it is some of the the logos, right? The formal logic, you know, the first cause, the metaphysics. And, and so that's why I kind of like to distinguish philology and linguistics. But yeah, it's, you know, we could call them both a type of special grammar for sure, right? Uh, and so when I teach the, the, the research 102, uh, I, you know, I, I tell them basically that, you know, your special grammar, we don't have a lot of time for it, but your general grammar is important for whatever you're researching, right? And so if you can become familiar with the general grammar, with whatever uh, language you use, um, you know, then then you basically have the basis for using deductive reasoning to basically explore that subject, right? You don't right. necessarily have to have a degree in science to study science or, or the arts for that matter, right? Well, you know, and in fact, a lot of times the trivia method surpasses that, and we've found numerous problems with the scientific method itself. I did a show over a year ago regarding revamping the scientific method itself and um you know it, it you know it's just like the peer review system is more of a method of keeping dissenting opinions out than it is a, a way to fact check proper uh research and and verifying research so you know it, it's maintaining the status quo rather than you know a and keeping keeping out dissenting opinions rather than uh, a way to make sure that research is solid. And 
you know, I've seen that a lot in my own case. Like when I started exposing my research on MK Ultra and whatnot back in uh, 2012, I, you know, back then I was working with several dozen professors in ethnomycology and ethnobotany, and they all within a week came out against me, name calling and whatnot, and telling me how I didn't bring my papers for their peer review. Uh, and dismissing the, you know, name calling at me and dismissing the research, but they couldn't address one single one of the primary citations in the actual research. You know, and that was when I realized that there was a lot of, uh, you know, BS going on with the peer review system and what was going on in the whole field. Yeah, certainly the peer review system. I mean, so these journals, right, are oftentimes sponsored, you know, by, uh, you know, either foundations or sometimes even companies. So, you know, there's several layers to, right, I mean, the, the, uh, the other agenda, right, as opposed to the objective, you know, discovery of truth, for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, All right, um, well, let's get into your uh, material here. Why don't we uh, talk about, you know... Uh, let's get into uh, curriculum. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so since we're, we're, we can segue from trivium to curriculum by talking about, since we started on special grammar, um, that's one thing that I, like I mentioned, they, they discourage kind of teaching even in, okay, I teach at the college, uh, community college level. And so, you know, not everybody is ready for college level courses when they come. And so you have to teach them what's, called developmental is what they call it sometimes. It's essentially a high school level course to catch them up to, to pace. Even in those courses, the prevailing pedagogy uh, is to suggest that they call it skill and drill. So the special grammar study is not gonna, is not gonna have a bunch of uh, great outcomes. It's not, they're not gonna learn much from it is the theory that they have. And maybe there's data that shows that. But what that stems from is essentially a shift from um, what they call the phonics method, right? You sound out the alphabet so that essentially, once you can do that, you can phonetically read anything, even if you don't know the meaning of it, you just need to maybe have a dictionary handy, but you can write phonetically understand the, the, the vowel sounds, the morphemes. Um, they replaced what's called phonics with what's called the look-say method, okay? Also known as whole language learning or whole word learning. So instead of uh, learning the roots and the prefixes and the suffixes of a word to be able to break it down into its components and understand what it means in the context of the sentence, um, essentially you, you have to recognize the entire word as a character, right? Uh, an ideogram, essentially like a Chinese language or like uh, maybe even the cuneiform, right? Some of the Egyptian stuff. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's studies that say that there's a, that the students learn faster over time or at the earlier stages with the look say, but then there's studies that say over time, right? Uh, that, 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 that kind of, that kind of ends, right? I mean, the, 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 when you start getting into more complex vocabulary, especially if you're doing like science-based vocabulary that uses a lot of Latin and Greek roots and things like that, it, you know, it's hard to pick up. And so that actually uh, segues with uh, what we'll call the stimulus response method. Uh, and that's essentially uh, education psychology. Right. That okay. sounds like uh, that sounds like uh, Skinner right there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, Skinner's that's operant conditioning. 
which is just basically, you know, the next uh, a little spin on what uh, John B. Watson called behaviorism. Uh, and then that's just basically a spin on uh, classical conditioning, which is Pavlov, which comes out of, you know, uh, you know Wilhelm Wundt's stimulus response stuff. But it's all essentially the same idea, right? It's, uh, it's essentially to move, remove logos at a certain level. It's to basically uh, appeal to the instinct or to the nervous system. Um, and so instead of right, breaking down the word into its, uh, because even a grammar, right, even a word that has an alphabet with roots and suffixes and prefixes, that has a logos as well, right? There's a logic in terms of how those parts go together. Um, and so that, you know, requires the application of the logos, right, the, the thinking mind, uh, as opposed to just recognizing this character and then responding to it with, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, with a limited uh, interpretive lens, you know, um, and so um, a lot of that kind of segues with, um, well, just getting away from academics in general, which is, right, the cultivation of the higher mind in pursuit of objective truth, and replacing that essentially with uh, career pathways, workforce training type stuff is some of the buzzwords. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> you know, and now they're not even, you know, now they're moving away from actual education and you've got all of this emotional nonsense learning and promoting social conditioning, social engineering, promoting the destruction of the family and whatnot by promoting, and eugenics by promoting transgender and homosexuality and things like that, even to kids in kindergarten that don't even have sexual thoughts yet, you know, so... Uh, now they're getting into nonsense that they shouldn't even be discussing at all. It shouldn't even be on the table. And it's really shifted in that regard in the last four or five years to where they're just, you know, promoting uh, pure hyperbole. Well, interestingly, right, I mean, you know, uh, you know, I, I teach all, all sorts of people, right? I mean, I want, I want all the, the gay students to feel comfortable. In well, sure, but, you know, what, I, what I'm getting at is there's been a whole movement of, and there's a Jaffa memo from Planned Parenthood, and I'll just pull that up right now, that uh, discusses how they're going to uh, heavily promote homosexuality and whatnot. Excuse me. And uh, here, and I'm showing that document on screen, and it says encourage increased homosexuality. The reason for that is they're you know they're trying to uh, when you when you understand it in terms of socialism and communism, you have to have a weak family and a strong government, and the way to do that is to promote things that end family and especially extended family, so that. People are reliant upon the government. And so when you, you know, increased homosexuality, one, it's eugenics. Two, you know, the people behind this, and we're going to get into uh, Aldous Huxley, et cetera, here soon. But, uh, you know, Aldous Huxley was behind promoting these ideas so that, uh, as a Fabian socialist, so that he could get people caught up into socialism. If you don't have children family, extended family, you don't have a support network. So then the government becomes your mommy and daddy support network. And so that is the whole idea behind that. And so, you know, going back into the 50s and 60s, they admitted that they were going to 
heavily promote all of this stuff. And then you see Agenda 21 and whatever they've renamed it to now promoting it even more heavily over the last four or five years. So they want to increase though, you know, homosexual activity and transgender activity as much as possible. That is part of the agenda that they're selling. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, part of it, you said a few things there. So one of it is, you know, you brought a brave new world. And so some of it just has to do with uh, sexuality as a form of keeping you down in the passions all the time, right? And so another one has to do with, yes, I mean, so if you're not engaged in reproductive relationships, that's Malthusian, you know, that helps Malthusian eugenics, certainly. You know, where I was going to say, though, was, was where I was going with that was that, you know, I have to say that philosophically, there's, there's a whole school called queer theory, right? And queer theory is essentially it's a refutation of existentialism, right? And existentialism is just a refutation of essentially rationalism, which is just a refutation of logos, right? You know, truth and God and things like that. And so, right, and that's what uh, it's always about, you know, and inverting everything to take people away from logos and natural law. Yeah, yes, and so, you know, um, you know, the other part of it is, you know, essentially, you know, there is... Uh, if essentially there is no biological basis to your sexuality, then there is no biological basis to your human identity in a way that essentially why, what's the difference between you and any other sort of raw material that you can sort of rearrange. Right, right, right. And there's, there's have. not 6,500 differences between male and female that are actually biological. It's, you know, if I put on a dress and a wig I'm a woman. You know, this is the logic of of the left these days. You know, when I was a kid, if you wanted to be someone else, you put on underoos and ran around the backyard and you didn't force anyone else to participate in your delusion. You know, whereas today they pass laws where if somebody wants to put on underoos and pretend they're Superman or a woman or a man or whatever, the the rest of society is required by law to then support that delusion. And, and, and that's kind of what I, I guess I was kind of the distinction I wanted to make. You know, I don't have a problem tolerating anything, but, you know, to be able to be, to be able to, uh, to be forced to say that philosophically that makes sense to me, you know, on the spectrum of, you know, classical logos to rationalism, to empiricism, to skepticism, to existentialism, to basically what they, what they call queer theory and then transhumanism. I mean, it, right. it is essentially a, I mean, it goes in that direction. And who I mean, created the term uh, transhumanism? Oh, Julian Huxley. You know, it's Thank in you. Uh, uh, Sir, it's called Sir, New Bottles for New Wine, right? Right. Sir, book, Sir yeah. Julian Huxley, our, our favorite eugenicist to expose here. And, uh, of course, he uh, wrote, what, what was it, the new theory or the new synthesis or the new, new synthesis or the new, 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 new synthesis for Darwin's hyperbole and then uh, – uh, his grandfather, Thomas Henry Huxley, was the propaganda manager for, for Darwin as well. And so then, you know, what they want the liberals to believe is that they're actually we're evolving out of a, a sexless state. Obviously, if you don't reproduce or have a family, there's no evolution. Your, your, your tree gets cut off, the branches get cut off and thrown in the fire. But, um, you know, but what they do is they sell it as the antithesis of what it is. Yeah. And, um, you know, interestingly, too, you know, we're talking about a lot of contradictions, you know, here. And, 
the, the term evolution doesn't even come from Darwin. That's Hegel's term. That's essentially the term he uses for his synthesis of the dialectic, right? So thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Nowadays, you know, some people call it problem, reaction, solutions when it's manipulated. Um, and essentially, philosophically, you know, there's two premises here that two things can be in contradiction and they can both be true at the same time. But also, there's another level to it that uh, over time, those contradictions synthesize into this higher state, right? And so this is, you know, this is the idea of Marxism. It's just a material conception of it instead of ide idealistic. Um, but so, you know, it's essentially what we're talking about here as well. And in, in uh, Brave New World, chapter one is all about biology and basically essentially what I would call the eugenics chapter. But the second chapter is all about psychology and it's essentially all about the, the, the behaviorist method. One of the main characters in there is Helmholtz Watson. That's a reference to Hermann von Helmholtz, German uh, physicist philosopher that kind of had a, uh, some, part, uh, some, some roots in the stimulus response method. And then you got John D. Watson, the American behaviorist there. And so what you get with transhumanism, instead of nature versus nurture, right? You say, you know, the, uh, the, the eugenicist that thought you could, you could get to the, the, the new man through genetic engineering, and then you had the behaviorists that thought that you'd get to the new man if you structured your environment perfectly enough to condition everybody. Transhumanism essentially combines those two into what's called epigenetics, and then also what I'll just call neurobehaviorism or neurogenetics. And right. It's the idea and that, that, and what I just wanted to ask you, since you mentioned the new man, what was the new man originally versus this this crap that they're pushing on everybody now? Do you know? I'm not quite sure. I understand okay, so originally the new man was someone who was born into Logos through following truth, right? And so this helped you raise up to a higher level of being. So what they've done is they've tried to invert that into their satanic uh, spin to take us, you know, to birth the new man, not through Logos, but through moral relativism and through, uh, you know, there not being any truth in the world. It's like going to Aldous Huxley's uh, Doors of Perception. You don't understand the world around you through your five senses you have to shut off the five senses and you know go within so it's a constant loop without understanding truth without understanding that reality is real and then you know so it's a direct inversion again but then you know this is birthing the new man through through ignorance and moral relativism and through social engineering and socialism rather than through truth and logos. Yeah, and a lot of it comes from essentially um, what I'll say is, you know, when we talk about logos, we mean in some ways we, we're focusing a lot on deductive reasoning. Some of this stuff, as, as you mentioned, It could right, be inductive also. I mean, I've covered this going way back with David Harriman, you know, back in 2011. There is, a way, you know, we can go inductive as well, but yeah, mostly. Oh, yeah, no, no, for sure. And I, you know, I mean, I don't mean to discount that, you know, induction doesn't work, right? But there's, induction has to happen on certain first causes and certain first principles, okay? Uh, in order for you to induct something, you have to know that there is some consistency. So, you know, some people would say that moral relativism kind of starts with the existentialist, you know, skepticism, but I would say that it starts with the empiricists. 
because the empiricists essentially tried to induct, tried to, and this is Francis Bacon, you know, David Hume, these types of guys, they, they tried to have inductive reasoning without a first cause, right? Hume's one of these guys that says that you can, you know, you can never experience a future moment. You can only, once you've experienced it, it's now a present moment. So you can never really know that the future will behave in the same way as it did before. This basically, he is doubting cause and effect at a fundamental level, right? right. And then you and just it, throw a you, rock at their head and see if they duck or not and find out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, I, you know? I, I oh, this. yeah. You know, physics is suddenly going to change. But this gets into like, you know, from the Bible, like Titus 1 2, God cannot lie. You can have no contradictions in nature. A contradiction is always a lie or an error. And once you understand that, then you can grasp that. You know, reality is always going to be real. And when you work from that that uh, axiom that reality is real and that we cannot have any contradictions in nature, suddenly it takes the weight off your back that the world is a reflection of yourself and, you know, which is primacy of consciousness. And then it gives everyone the right to live and behave as they wish rather than, Oh, well, you know, if you uh, carry a gun for defense, you're just bringing that negative energy on you. Or if you have a spare tire in, in your car, you're just wishing for a flat tire. You know, or if you have a first aid kit, you're wishing to get uh, injured. This is the, you know, the type of mentality that the leftist primacy of consciousness promotes. But when you pull it back and accept the axiom that reality is real and that everyone has their own right to exist and act uh, uh, through their own agency as they wish, then suddenly we can begin to see reality itself and what people like the Huxley family have been trying to cover up for, you know, several generations. And this is where the inductive method without roots in a first cause and some of the first principles from formal logic, um, that induction ends up in, a, in, like you said, in this realm of, I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's numbers in, in mathematics that aren't that like, so there's like numbers that represent a complete infinite set. Right? I mean, that's, that's right, fundamentally a contradiction. So when you start playing quantitatively inductively with stuff like that, I mean, you're in the realm of the occult, right? You're in the realm of like turning off your your own reason. Uh, you know, you're you're doubting the ability of your own mind to know truth, essentially, right? You have to have these these abstractions, and you're you're out there in you know like Gnostic land, basically, like La La Land, essentially. Um, and so, you know, um, this the basis of it is essentially. Um, to, to cut off logos, you know, rhetoric has, you know, there's there's three parts of how we can express what we want to. There's logos, right, which is logic, and there's ethos, which is essentially to establish trust, okay, character, credibility, things like that. Uh, and then there's pathos, which is, you know, emotion, okay. Uh, you know, Aristotle conceived that your soul was basically broken up like that as well. So you had, right, the thinking mind, right, you had the, the feeling part of you, the pathos, right, and then you had the doing part, the will, which is the ethos, right, that's your character. Um, so, you know, w without those first causes, what you're essentially doing is 
um, living in a realm where you're essentially trying to justify your own will based on your own passions right. without any logos. Right. So. Well, and <laughs> do what thou wilt is the whole of the law, and Islam follows will rather than logos, you know, the, the, and they're under the spell of Muhammad's will. Literally, that's what is halal, you know, and that's a whole other discussion that we've already, uh, you know, covered on the show this year. But uh, once you understand logos versus will, you get you get the whole foundation of it all, essentially. Well, and you know, Nietzsche's thing was will, right? I mean, essentially, that was one of his. You know, Nietzsche's a funny guy. In some ways, I kind of like him. You know, I mean, even though he was kind of a madman, and you know, he had no, you know first causes in essential but in a lot of ways his philosophy kind of came out of this malaise that you know of what the things that human guys like that did he, he kind of hated that he that he couldn't for whatever reason you know actually have faith in logos and um you know this is a guy who eventually uh you know uh goes crazy you know essentially some of his first principles are will courage brave i mean some of those things are kind of you know admirable in a certain in a certain sense but without that first cause you know i mean some guys some people would say it was from the syphilis you know that's this you know, as people speculate that but you know there was a there was somebody beating a horse out in the street and he essentially you know he just just melted down you know i mean so you know where was will there without some kind of you know objective objective truth um, and so, you know, in Brave New World, there's at, at the end of it, the world controller is, he's got Helmholtz Watts in there, he's got Bernard Marx there, and then he's got John the Savage there. And um, essentially, um, you know, Watson is a propagandist, and he wants to make, uh, he wants to make art, and he wants to make poetry. He's like, he feels that there's something, I can, there's a truth I can express with these words, but he can't figure it out. And, you know, uh, the savage, right, who was on this reservation, he had access to the Bible and Shakespeare and stuff like that. And so, you know, he knew about like families, truth, beauty, right, God, stuff like that. And he tries to kind of explain like, this is what you're trying, this is what you're trying to get at Helmholtz, this is what you want to express. And he, Helmholtz laughs at him, he thinks it's, you know, it's absurd. Um, and uh, when they're in front of the world controller, the savage call, says, yeah, you know, what, what Helmholtz, he says, that stuff is dribble and it's stupid and all of that. And he says, hey, you're not being very nice to your friend Helmholtz. And Helmholtz says, well, it's true. And the guy says, no. Well, World Controller says, it's the highest form of art because you're creating art based on just sensations. And it's essentially what we're talking about, right? I mean, it's essentially, I mean, this is most music nowadays, right? I mean, it's it's a lot of, you know, it's, it's a lot of this pop culture. Right. It's TV not stuff. the quadrivium. It's, you know, it's degraded. It's the most basic... Uh animal level instinct you know sex drugs rock and roll boom 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 repeat and that's you know the electronic dance music and all of this crap and you know i used to go to rave parties and whatnot and now i just look at that stuff and i can't even believe i ever walked in a, in the door of one of those things it's just complete garbage but it's to break us down to the most basic animal level and uh, to corrupt our minds, whereas the trivium and quadrivium brought us, you know, in the 16th, 1700s, ending in the late 1800s, brought us to the highest level that humankind had ever been through, you know, classical music and, you know, all of the higher level arts, uh, painting and whatnot. And then now we have 
abstract painting and modern art where, you know, a woman menstruates on a, on a piece of canvas and then that's called art. And, or, you know, you have Duchamp, uh, you know, signing his name on a urinal, uh, on a urinal and calling that, that nonsense art. It takes no talent whatsoever, right? Or, you, you know, splash some paint on a, on a board, but you don't need the basic or the core understanding of how to paint and how to create higher level art. It's just all the most basic, you know, animal-like instincts. You know, a monkey and an elephant can create that level of art. So, you know, that's where people are at now. We've lost our higher education. You can look at, you know, I do this with the students sometimes, you know, in, in, um, in chapter three on Brave New World, I, I teach it, right? I teach it with the re research class. Uh, and in chapter three, there's a split narrative. All the other chapters, it's a linear narrative. In chapter three, there's two narratives happening and he's jumping back and forth. And it's neat because at some points, it's, you know, when you switch from one scene to the other, there's these double entendres. It means one thing if it's part of the other narrative. It means something else. It's part of this narrative. And it's neat like that. But something else he was playing with was modernism, right? And, and it's essentially, you know, the, the analog and the visual arts would have been something like cubism, okay? And essentially, it's this idea that what we're talking about, it's the removal of logos, right? right. Um, yeah. I was <laughs> just going to say, some, some, somebody yeah. just said something funny. I belong in the kitchen just said, you know, you just have to identify as an artist, right? You know, it's like I identify as a goat or a girl or an old woman or anything. You know, you just put on a wig and a, you know, and a dress or whatever, and that makes you the other thing. You don't have to be actually anything with any real experience or understanding biological or learned or otherwise. You know, it's just, uh, yeah, you're just going to identify as an artist. And, you know, art has become what, gets the most shock and react the, the largest reactionary shock out of the audience rather than it being about the quality of the art itself yeah and this goes back to the idea right you're just stimulating the passions which goes back to the whole idea of stimulus response right and, and working at that basically that lower brain level yeah the natural <clears throat> going all the way down to the natural man rather than working our way upward you know so, you know, it doesn't matter if it's EDM music or, you know, menstruating on a canvas, which, you know, there's actually, you know, like there was a woman in China a couple of years ago. That was her art. She menstruated on paper in public. And then that was her 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 masterpiece. Well, I mean, this is on a progression, kind of what I, as I, as I suggested from, you know, we go from, you know, classical logos to rationalism, you know, down to what we call queer theory and then transhumanism. Um, you can do the same thing with art. So you can look at some of the classical stuff around the Renaissance. You know, the Byzantine stuff was largely platonic, okay? And it always usually was something pointing upwards higher, was a little abstract. But then during the Renaissance period, you got some realistic stuff, right? And it started to look more realistic and more realistic until you got to Impressionism. And so it's the idea of right, empirically, you're, you're measuring, you're measuring, you're measuring. And when you measure stuff smaller and smaller, it becomes blurry, just like an impressionist painting, right? So from far away, when you look at the actual patterns that are there, the logos of how all the different pieces work together, you see people and you, you see animals and you see, you see a landscape. 
But if you get if you keep getting up close and you just look at the individual data points, it just looks like dots everywhere. You move forward to cubism, which basically is it's it's, it's you know uh, an extension of that, except instead of largely trying to make a picture with the data points, you're trying to blur what could be a picture with lots of dissonance, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, over oversecting lines. Uh, hard, hard angles, right? Th looking at two sides of someone's face at the same time. Uh, and then you keep going out there into the more abstract until you go into the, essentially the profane. It's just, it's just inverting everything for the sake of inverting it, right? Right. Well, you know, that's what Satanists do by definition. You know, they go through the Bible and they say, oh, this is how you build a, an upright high society. Let's invert that and try to wreck it. You know, it's like Marxism and, and Aldous Huxley's Fabian Socialism and all this stuff. Uh, their idea is that through eradicating all morality and promoting, you know, pedophilia, bestiality, homosexuality, transgender, etc., cetera, uh, you know, not having family values or anything of the sort, this will, through Marxist theory, somehow create a utopia through the ultimate destruction of society, rather than creating a natural utopia through Logos. Yeah, and, you know, in, in Brave New World, um, if they're, the idea of inversion is essentially, you know, we can, we can trace this back to when St. Augustine essentially um, became a Christian, right, and moved from Manichaeism, became Christian. Uh, it was actually, uh, he looked at Plotinus, I think it was Ambrose, it gave it was Athanasius or Ambrose. I always get them mixed up. It was one of those, one of those apostle, apostolic fathers that gave him. Uh, he said, "Look at you know, uh, uh, Augustine was kind of confused with Manichaeism. He knew he knew it was you know the duality wasn't wasn't where it was at. And so uh, Ambrose or Athanasius, whichever it was, gave him uh, Plotinus to look at. And Plotinus, one of the principles, it's Neoplatonic, you know, but the idea, one of Plotinus's concepts was that." Uh, the good is first, and everything has to be has to come after that. Or you know, you and I might say something like the truth. The truth is first, and then you know, falsehood can only can only be created by an inversion of the truth. And so this is the nature. Of, I mean, if if you're not with logos, the only thing you can do with it is invert it. You can't create something outside of it. You can only invert it. And so literally, in in you know, Brave New World, um, they take the crosses. They can't get rid of the religious spirit altogether. They know that that's part of the human condition, the human psyche, the human soul, human brain, if you want to use their, their analog. So what they do is they, well, they chop all of the cross, the tops of the crosses off and they make them T's, model T's for, instead of our Lord, it's our four, it's this big illusion to corporatism and fascism and stuff like that. Don't, don't, um, and that's just they, the brave they, new they, world, but don't forget Aldous Huxley and the, you know, the 60s counterculture and the whole peace thing, because what is the peace symbol? It's the inverted cross with the, uh, th you know, with the, the T snapped down, you know, and so, you know, we will, you know, it's not peace through logos or truth. It's peace through, you know, it's like these, uh, Co you know, these stupid coexist bumper stickers that you see people, you know, uh, with on the back of their cars, not grasping. And I'm not talking about the NRA one. That one's actually good. But, um, you know, with all of the religious symbols on the back of their cars and coexist. And, and then you go in and you look at, 
you know, Islam and 51% of the Quran is about killing and subjugating all non-believers. You know, it's like, wait, how do we coexist with that? These are drastically different belief systems, and they do not belong in the same culture, hemisphere, planet, you know, etc. But again, you know, Islam is is based on Allah being will, whereas Christianity is based on logos or truth. So they're, you know, and when people think that Christianity and Islam follow the same God, that is complete nonsense. But, you know, we digress quite a ways. We should probably get back to uh, some of the stuff on your outline here, you know. Oh, that's okay. I mean, like I said, we could jump off because I do get into Brave New World in the book. I mean, that's that's one of my... And, you know, philosophically, it relates to, you know, the trans, the transhumanist stuff. But, yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, you know, I guess it's, it's a segue, you know, um, the stimulus response stuff. Essentially, the idea is, you know, with, with all of the, the, the transhumanist stuff, it's, it's essentially to create this technological bubble where you can actually, where they think you might be able to get away with having... Where you where you could justify your passions with your will without logos if they insulate themselves right with enough uh, you know brain computer interfaces is what they call them um, that somehow that that'll work right I mean that you know because it won't work if they just try to live in contradiction right um, but um, yeah I mean we, we can we can jump to another one of those uh, bullets sure. in there if you want yeah sure get into uh, pedagogy and philosophy of education there. Yeah, uh, did we already okay. cover? Uh, did we already cover trivium enough, or you want to go deeper, trivium and quadrivium, etc.? I think that's. I think that's good. I mean, I actually think you know, pe- pedagogy wise, we kind of talked a lot of. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the removing of. I mean, language arts is is pretty much integral to logos. I mean, logos. One of the interpretations is word, right? And, and so you know, it is in some way you know. The countervalence to the, you know, the quantitative empirical method. Um, essentially, um, it might be might be better to jump to maybe govern governance. Sure, or, let's or yeah. Maybe the technology. The one room schoolhouse, yeah. uh, parochial compulsory. Yeah, I mean, you know, and then this is something that's really interesting, and I've talked about it on the show many times. Back in the eighteen hundreds, the single room schoolhouse ruled, and you have still a few of them left in very rural areas, but it's very rare now. And, um, you know, the, the eighth graders, for instance, taught the younger kids. And as you went through the process, you not only were learning, but you were teaching. And so by the time, you know, people left eighth grade back in the 1800s, they had the equivalent of or more than uh, your average bachelor's degree today. And people can't even get their minds around, and they think that the you know that the single room schoolhouse was an error, and it was a silly thing in our educational uh, history and whatnot. But no, that is actually key to a proper education. I mean, it's organic, and you know, I mean, um, I like the analog. I've I've done martial arts for almost twenty years now. Um, and some of the best places I've trained is in a garage with a bunch of people that knew what they were talking about. You know, I mean, sometimes the, I mean, the institutional setting in general can, can take the life out of any art, but, uh, you know, the, when you federalize it, make it compulsory, 
right? And then essentially standardize the curriculum you know, across 50 states that, I mean, the idea of having different states is to have some diversity of cultures and different, you know, experiment with some different things here and there. And so, you know, the idea that people in the Midwest and the East Coast and West Coast are going to want to have the same type of schoolhouse is, you know, uh, I mean, they, they, they would they would put it on the premise that that's that, that's that is equality, right? To have give everybody or to force everybody to have the same curriculum, but you know, uh, right? Well, and, and then you know this promotion of diversity. Well, what's the root of the word diversity? Well, to divide, right? To, to, well, to separate part, yeah. right? You know, so so we're going to divide people through diversity. I mean, it's right in the name that they use, and people actually think this means come together. No, it's to divide and to cause derision in the society. You know, when you've got, uh, you know, all of this liberal or Islamic stuff coming into the schools and education system and everything is is political correctness and whatnot. Everybody needs their safe space and whatnot. This isn't helping education. Nobody's learning critical thinking in school anymore. You know, we're we're learning about how to think with our emotions and how not to offend anybody. Whereas, you know, before people understood that freedom of speech was, you know, it was okay to be offended and you learn and grew from it. Now everybody cries and gets their depends diapers on and, uh, you know, go run, goes and runs off into their safe space. They cannot handle critical thinking anymore. And in fact, critical thinking and logic have even been uh, accused of being abusive now. I've heard that come across in the last five, seven years as well. It definitely is a lot of um, identity politics in academia, man. Uh, you know, well, and I, I, I should, I, I forgot to mention that you're an adjunct professor and you're in the classroom every day, so. Oh, yeah. You know, man, I get along with everybody, like, you know, people from all, like, people that, I don't bring up all the conspiracy theory types. I don't even go there, right? I mean, I can't even talk trans transhumanism. I bring that up with a lot of people, you know, people with higher degrees, they, they probably don't know what I'm talking about. And they'll be freaked out, right? If I show, show them the data. And, you know, uh, and I get along with everybody, man. Like, but, uh, dude, the identity politics is exhausting sometimes. Like, I, you know, and by the way, you know, uh, I didn't really pick up on it. You know, like my, I'm, I'm kind of late to the some of this research type stuff. And uh, but in before I even kind of started looking at some of this, you know, the, the, the other layers to this, when I started tutoring, I noticed, well, as an English professor, whenever you read something, you're supposed to interpret it through different lenses. You know, that, that makes enough sense. I mean, you know, there's, you know, you could look at it through different angles. OK, I, that, that makes enough sense. But, you know, then I noticed that it was always race, class, gender, sexuality, race, class, gender, sex, no matter what it was. And I thought maybe that's just English professors because, you know, they're pretty left wing and, they, you know, they kind of, you know, they, they think with the fillings more than the, the upper mind and sometimes they're artsy. But then when I was tutoring, students would come in in the sciences, history, all every department and all the assignment sheets would have that same you had to, you had to talk about you know if you're doing a colonial history you had to talk about sexuality in 17th century you know whatever and and, and so uh, then I noticed it was like okay so this isn't just like a department thing this is somehow a college wide thing and, and that was just my you know just kind of like just you know what's up with that and and then you know as as you and I have you know read it's 
you know, a lot of that comes from, you know, foundations, you know, companies, right? You know, this, this transhumanist, eugenic, you know, uh, industrial complex, so to speak. And so, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's um, you know, and I, like I said, I mean, I, I let everybody express whatever they want. You know, when a student writes a paper, I tell them this, as long as you don't, they write short papers, man. So they don't even have to have the greatest thesis. They just don't, they just, don't contradict yourself by the end of it and provide me some form of evidence. So a fact, statistic, quote, or other example, right? Right. And, well, uh, I mean, they should have to do the whole process of who, what, where, when, why, and how, and, and, you know, go through the whole thing and have a, a, a way to substantially prove their argument, you know, and in the process of going through that, they should have to learn that, Hey, if my thesis is wrong, I'm going to have to rewrite it so that it comes out to be truthful by the end. Oh, yeah. And, you know, but you'd be surprised. Maybe not. Like, you know, it's interesting because you get kind of a window into the mind when you sit down and, and go over a paper someone wrote with them. Because, like, you know, they don't always see the contradictions somehow. And I just, to me, that's, that's odd because it's like, how do you move forward with it? And I'm not saying like subtle things that don't line up because rhetorically you don't have to, it's not like formal logic where with one of your premises is wrong. The whole thing falls apart like an equation. You could have, you know, a, a fact here that's not so good or bad. It doesn't destroy necessarily your thesis, but like if you go to the total opposite of your thesis, I mean, literally at 180 and then be like, you know, you kind of, they're like, where? And you show them. And, and then, and then it's like, Oh, and so, um, you know, I mean, I let them rewrite their papers, so you know they usually do. I mean, that's that's I think that's why I've never. How often did, are how often are students honest enough to be willing to uh, admit they're wrong and rewrite everything? Uh, if they're failing the class, a lot of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? If they if they know they need to pass, they will they will rewrite. I mean, do they hide, um, do they hold yeah. on to the ideologies, or do they uh, actually you know come about and learn you know that. The evidence that you base your arguments on the evidence and not on your emotions of what you want something to be. Yeah, some people would probably never get that far, but I mean, some <laughs> people you can see, you know what I mean? And I don't, and I don't hold, you know, it's like, it's like, okay, it's like, hey, dude, you see how your thesis is this, you know, your enthymeme is this, and look at, look at how these other claims are essentially the opposite. And then, you know, they're like, oh, okay. And so they'll go back and rewrite. Now, and I won't tell them, hey, you have to change your thesis. I said, well, you have to either find some better evidence or maybe change, you know, I put it out there, but I, you know, I tell them, I said, I'm not going to say, hey, change your thesis, right? So, you know, it's always, it's always up to them. Like, uh, but it's usually the carrot and the, <laughs> I'm doing the stimulus response on them with, with, with holding that uh, revision grade out there, but it's, it's better than just whack. Because right? I, I hold them to a high standard. They, they all, that's one thing they all say is I grade hard, but. I've never had somebody at the end say I didn't deserve the grade I had because they all know they could have rewrote it, yeah, and so that so they at that level I think they all do understand a certain logos that you know what I mean that I'm in people I've been teaching for ten years and people people get grade disputes pretty often I mean you don't have it doesn't have to be your fault because the student might just not like you for it reason. but I, well I you know and it, one of the biggest problems I see is people have a really hard time differentiating between third hand second hand and primary evidence of something. They think that, you know, what somebody writes or says is as valid as the actual proven fact of a primary citation. 
you know, so if I go to it, you know, and I've tried to explain the difference between third, secondary, and, and primary citations on the show a number of times, but people think that if they read a book where somebody is talking about something else, that's as good as going to the something else as the primary source. And it's not. You have to go to the original source and verify if this secondary source is even telling the truth. You know, and you know, in academia, I'm sure you've seen this. You get a, you know, these these professors and these peer reviews and and journals that circle jerk themselves where they all cite each other. And all of them, you're laughing, all of them avoid going to the primary citations. They all just cite each other, and then they act like what they've written is proved, right? Rather than getting all the way down. And it's, and the, the biggest thing that these people hate is when you see their little circle jerk going on, and you go to the primaries, and you fact check them, and you realize they're the whole lot of them are full of crap. You know, And that's the fastest way to debunk it doesn't matter if it's you know 5 10 20 50 100 professors i've seen you know whole cells of these guys doing this stuff and and as soon as i see that usually that clues me in that that something is up and that the their information is wrong you know they shouldn't all be citing each other they should each be citing the primary documentation the primary facts the primary sources and so, you know, that's always the quickest way to, to disprove something. But they're not going to teach the kids in college this, right? Because that, that gives up the whole gig. Yeah, well, so there's two things that you guys go on there. One is the idea, right, understanding the difference between a, you know, first-hand, second-hand source, right? Um, now, you know, the schools where I teach, we don't have the biggest library. So sometimes a secondary source for them is the best they can get. But you're right. You well, know, we I do mean, have this thing called the Internet these days. Oh, no, uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, you, you know, know here, here's the thing is I've gone online, not found something, and then traveled to a university archive and sat there reading through personal letters and archival documents for weeks just to get the proof of you know, or the, the primary evidence is something, you know, and that's what you have to go to until you get the primary that actually substantiates your argument. You don't have it, you know, and then, you know, what, what is third hand evidence? That's someone talking about the person talking about the primary evidence. So, it, you know, it's just, you know, it's a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, hearsay. And so, people today actually believe that second and third hand hearsay is as valid as proof as primary documentation. Oh, oh yeah, no, no. For, look at look sure. at the Trump look at the Trump impeachment trials as evidence of that. You know, you have <laughs> you have all of this you know uh, hearsay stacked on top of hearsay on top of hearsay and no primary evidence, and then they all dance around it like they have actually provided evidence. Right, anecdotal. Yeah, and then you know, for the, you talked about the. Um, you know, uh, your colorful analogy there, the, the, the circle event, the circular event there. Uh, <laughs> the, that, you know, I got an example of that in the book, which is, um, <clears throat> sorry, which is, in, I believe, it's Intelligence, the journal called Intelligence. And um, it, there's, a, there's a bunch of people in there, and I don't want to say them off the top of my head because some of them aren't still on there, but I will just throw out some of the people there, they 
they all are in the bibliography of the bell curve. It's essentially, and if you trace them back, they're essentially go back to this thing called the Pioneer Fund and a half of his other citations are all old eugenic stuff, uh, you know, like Friedrich Osborne, uh, the old military eugenic stuff, uh, the, the, IQ, the IQ data from there. And so when, when you looked at the board, I know, I, I think one of them was, um, God, Godfordson, Linda Godfordson, and then there's there's a couple other one on a couple other on there. But yeah, intelligence, and it was just like as I was looking up, that's one of those you know the bell curve. You can kind of dig in the back of that, and you can just look at the citations on it, uh, and you just and just look at you know it's one of those circular events there. You look at all these people, and you know I I've dug through all that old eugenic stuff, you know, Human Betterment Foundation, American Eugenics. I mean, I've actually they actually had a bunch of those books in the library at the at Eastern where I went to college. And so uh, I used to like go and, and dig because because when I, I didn't learn about eugenics until my senior year of college, which is kind of embarrassing, you know. And it's, <laughs> I didn't know what that word was, right? You know, all this Hitler's bad stuff that you see all the time, and like never heard that word. And that, that's really what got me started on my journey in this this realm of research. Because it's like, wait, how did I, I'm about to be have my degree, and I, I and how did I not know this? And and, and I, you know, I, I heard it on some of these wacky conspiracy theory websites. My friends were saying, it's like, this is crazy. I says, if that's real, it'll be in the library. And so I looked and I'm like, what are you talking about? And, and as I mentioned, every class had this, you know, this race, racial justice uh, component to it. And, you know, and I was, you know, very much all about that stuff. You know, I mean, still am, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm black, by the way, you know, and so it's not like I'm, I you know, I'm not a, not a, a racist or something like that uh but the, well the that, that's was, just the easiest car to use for by the emotionally driven to avoid yeah, any right. research oh you used facts you're a racist you're a nazi you know what do they what do they call that there's a there's a specific term for it uh let me see if i can find it it's called godwin's law right and so godwin's law is uh, and I'll just read this really quickly. It's pretty funny. In uh, an internet is an internet adage asserting that as an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazi or a Hitler approaches <laughs> one. So so it's just so it's it's like you're you're bound to, to go down that dialect. Right. Well, I mean, they're going to force it just because if you're presenting any sort of facts, you're going to be called Nazi, Hitler, racist. You know, well, right, okay, so what I was trying to do was point out the contradictions in in the racial justice theory of what was being pushed. Yet I never heard about eugenics from these people, right? And so what I'm trying right. to point out is the total opposite. And now, right now, I'm defending against something because I'm pointing out its contradictions, right? So, <laughs> uh, right, right. I mean, well, yeah, of course, that's yeah. that's that's the agenda because what they do is invert everything. So that's what they have to do to. Excuse me to uh, deflect and divert. Well, and that's the that's what I mean by the identity politics stuff is exhausting because it's like, you know, and that's something that it's like, do I have to like, why do I have to, why does my character matter if when we're talking about issues? I guess you know what I mean, ideas and issues, and you know, I mean, you know, hey, I'm 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 not a perfect guy, nobody is, right? So, no. Um, but, but, you know, so the, you know, all we can try to do is follow Logos to the best of our example, right? Or to the best and, of our ability. And then Jesus being the ultimate example of trying to live in truth and trying to understand what Logos is. 
Well, and that's the thing that people, the a lot of the people that wanted to refute the, the formal logic and logos and God and all that is the idea that, well, you just, you can't know that, you know, you can't know that. <laughs> well, you're right, you know, but I don't have to know that. All, all I have to know is when I, I have to find the contradictions in my own life, right? I don't have to know the contradictions in the entire universe. That is not well, my place. Well, here's, the, here's the thing. And you can actually, you know, when you have that epiphany moment, you know that you've hit Logos. But you, when you're researching something, when you've removed all of the contradictions and you have that aha epiphany moment, that's when you've hit Logos. And you know you have the truth on that topic. And then if, you know, other people can bring you data, you know, grammar after that over time, and if you see a new contradiction, you know, generally, once you've, if you've gone through all of the who, what, where, and when, if somebody brings you something new, you know, you can look at it and say, does it fit? Or, you know, I've already actually discounted that. But, you know, without having the trivium and understanding this basic premise, you know, people think, you know, like when I write a paper, I'll get a thousand, two thousand people send me the exact same argument against my work, and each one of them will think it's original, that their that their thought or claim is original, and I just don't want to hear them out, right? When I've already discounted their so-called evidence, you know, which is, you know, like let's say if I write an, a paper on MK Ultra and psychedelics, their argument would be. Oh well, you know, psychedelic mushrooms are older than the CIA. Therefore, you know, false conclusion, uh, non sequitur. They can't be bad. They have to be the true source of of religion. Or, or you've never tried them, right? And so you have, you know, which of course I have, and I've written books and papers on all of this. But you know, they all use the exact same emotionally uh, baseless arguments to try to you know, uh, you know, hold up their, their false arguments. And every single one of them uses the exact same false premises. And every single one of them thinks that their thought is actually original. And every single one of them doesn't read the research before they present this nonsense as well. Because they can't, you know, like your, your students, they, they don't have the intellectual integrity to admit that they might be wrong on something and have to change an opinion based on actual evidence. Well, a lot of times I think, you know, I mean, you've probably been in, I mean, some of the people you're talking about as far as, you know, John, the John in the chat, sorry, John in the chat just said, it's your fault that I'm having cognitive dissonance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's I mean, a lot of this stuff is like, it goes back to the identity politics stuff, right? And so, like, you, you can kind of, sometimes with some people, you start a conversation, like, especially in academia, before I broach any con controversial stuff, I like to I like to pose it as a question that I heard somebody else <laughs> talk about, right? You're like, hey, you ever hear about this? And, if, and you can kind of gauge early on, like, whether or not that person is going to, like, have a conversation, uh, you know, without without a pre-drawn pre conclusion and kind right. of just, you know, you know, not spar with you necessarily, but you know, go back and forth in dialogue. You, but you can tell other people. I mean, and you, you can kind of like, you know, it's like a right-left thing sometimes. You know, and then, then then there's other categories that go along with it. You know, first you can say are they Republican or Democrat, and then there's those little other identity. You know, which ethnic group do they identify with? Which sexuality do they identify? With? And then the box gets smaller and smaller until you, you really lack 
you know, this is where your general grammar can't break through, you know, somebody's identity uh, politics. <laughs> right, I mean? right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They've created a a box that they've pigeonholed themselves in, which and the box is made out of pure lies. Right. And so this is the identity politics. I'm an LGBT QWERTY because, you know, it used to be LGBT, then Q and then QWERTY because they took over the whole keyboard. And, um, you know, so, you know, and it's then it's what they identify with rather than identifying with facts and truth, finding the logos, you know, and finding, you know, and once you grasp that logos, truth is God and logos is where we get the, the word logic from, then you can and, and, you know, logos is also reason and, you know, and then you can find a path the way out you know you can find a way out of of this this labyrinth of nonsense but people are caught up with their their labels and their identities rather than with logos and the truth and that's another thing in brave world too right you know they have the they have the uh, scientific caste system which is you know and it's uh they, they put the students, uh, the babies, and this is in the second chapter. That's the one that's all about psychology. So part of it is <clears throat> the behaviorist method, which is uh, conditioning the nervous system through stimulus response. But then there's also the subconscious conditioning, which is essentially the Freudian stuff. And he's got all his allusions to Freud in there. <laughs> uh, but they put, the, they put the babies to sleep, and then they put this, what they call hypnopedia. And then they put these slogans in their ears, like basically like an ad jingle. And it says something like, I'm a Delta and I love being a Delta because, you know, I'm smarter than the Epsilons, but I'm not, uh, I don't have to do all that hard work that the Betas and the Alphas have to do. And then they, right. and, and that's it. Right. And, and they said that that was best for, uh, in the, in the book, they called it moral education because essentially, right. It was something that, you know, we morally is something that we trust is a first cause, right. Morality is the first cause God. Uh, and then we have an emotional attachment to the things that we trust, right? And so if you can get people to trust their caste system at the emotional level, then essentially, right, you have a, a you know this amoral automaton that just that just performs their workforce function. And that can actually segue into you know one of the things that I looked at at the end was the uh, the social credit system in China. And, and <laughs> it, it may be making right. its way right. here. Oh yeah, day. well, rule by consensus rather than by you know facts and and whatnot. And then you you base everything on this identity politics and false information and what people want to identify through feel good hyperbole, and then. You know, and then, you know, it goes back to the, you know, a million Frenchmen uh, can be wrong and usually are. But all of this comes down to rule by consensus. And so you get people attacking someone just because their beliefs are different. Oh, you're a Christian. Oh, you voted for Trump. We're going to beat you up if you don't fall in line with our uh, communist agenda, you know, and then. You know, it's like most people don't realize when you get into, uh, for instance, the uh, Nazi Party, most people don't realize that the Nazi Party was the, um, let me see here, uh, I'm just looking for the name of it, it's usually right on the top here, 
the National German Socialist Workers Party or whatever it was, but the Socialist Workers Party. And so one thing the left never wants to admit is that the Nazis were leftists, you know. There were socialists, and they were, you know, fascism, socialism is, are both forms of Marxism, different levels of, of Marxism. But they want to avoid this whole thing when they're screaming their ad hominem attacks at everybody to avoid looking further at the truth. So screaming Nazi, screaming Hitler, screaming racist is part of their, and going back to Saul Alinsky and Rules for Radicals, but it's part of their consensus ruling. You know, and, and that you were talking about with China. Yeah, well, you know, in, in the in brave world, it's all about social stability, right? And, and and there's allusions to both communism, socialism, and fascism in there, and uh, in, in that novel, right? There's Bernard Marx, but then there's also, you know, they got the, the, uh, the references to Ford, who was, you know, buddy buddy with Hitler, right? You know, and, and funded a lot of that stuff and got got awards from. So there's both of those things going on there. That's because they both Marxism and fascism not only stem from socialism, but they both go back to Hegelianism, which is again this idea that the contradictions and and you know to to jump back to the to the social credit system that it's essentially a digital caste system that is essentially, you know, in essence, what, what Huxley called his scientific caste system. Now, you know, uh, some people would crit critique the trivium and formal logic and classical logos and, you know, all that type of stuff. Uh, they, they might say that once upon a time, you know, that was uh, that type of learning methodology held up the divine right of kings, right? And then there was this, essentially right. this caste system like that. But yeah, you know, and they'll create this the whole same, false argument based around, you know, based around it, right? And you get to the same place with this with empiricism either way. What what do some of these people, you know, you go from, you know, either a metaphysical or so-called metaphysical caste system uh, to essentially a scientific caste system to a digital caste system, um, and you know, effectively. You know, it's the same thing. What what do you look at some of what these transhumanists, you know, Kurzweil refers to himself as becoming a god. There's the the church of AI, I think it's called W Way of the Future. So W O T F, which I think is a pun on what the F, right? And then there's, you know, so so you get going back to that analog with the art, right? You 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 measure stuff so much to where it gets just as blurry in this world of empirical transhumanist science as it would be if you were trying to look out into, you know, the heavens or the ether and tell me what uh, Jupiter, you know, looks like up there. You know, I mean, it's essentially the same ir irrationality. Um, but the, the horrific thing about the, the social credit system is that, you know, there's, there's, there's no due process. It's in real time. Like, have you ever seen some of those videos where the people, not when they buy stuff, but when they put it in their cart, their score goes down or up depending on, you know, if they bought beer or diapers, right? Um, you know, and, and essentially we're, we're not, like all they'd have to do is put in a law where, where they would say that they could do that. And they've already got the infrastructure put up here. I mean, everything is data mine cookies and it's just, just transmitting it to each other nonstop all the time. So I've been warning people about this stuff for years as is Dr. Hans Utter, who's been on my show about 45 times. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so obvious that this is the uh, direction that they're, they're going. And then uh, somebody just said that, uh, 
Tom Steyer, who's running for president right now. He's the billionaire that was under uh, Obama. He's a, a big-time uh, communist. But uh, he creates the rating systems for movies for your, for your kids. You know, and then he also runs, uh, you know, helps fund these these troll groups that run around the Internet and scream Nazi uh, or, you know, Jew whenever somebody brings up anything that they disagree with. You know, he's he's the money behind these groups like the the GDL and some of these other groups, you know, through his. uh, What is uh, his organization? uh, Oh, goodness. Now I'm forgetting. I'll have to. Look it up here. Hold on a second. Next, next, next gen America. That's what it is, you know. And he's got this woman who used to work for him, uh, Samaria Salazar, who's tied with all of these different groups. But they go around promoting these social engineering agendas, and anybody who doesn't fall a line, they they use these tactics, you know. But he's invested in China and and elsewhere. So uh, thanks for everybody in the notes or in the uh, chat commenting on that. That's uh, you know, great point. Oh, yeah, I should mention, um, you know, I, I do, you know, my, I got that website, schoolworldorder.info. So uh, it's got, basically, I got a 2,000 citations. And so, you know, anyone wants to check on the citations that are there, most of them are links. I'm, I'm, I'm cleaning it up as I go. It's taking a while. So, you know, I mean, any of the stuff I'm talking about with, you know. I don't. I'm not good like you guys are with pulling up screen sharing. Well, I, and all that. I've had this database going for almost 13 years now, so you know it's got 10, 15,000 citations in it, so I can just pull it up and find. I've stuff. seen that map. It is really cool, man. Yeah, like, yeah it's. I, I've been working on that for a long time, so that's the only reason why. You know, I real. I used to work in IT back in the 90s, and I okay. had to. Uh, you know, deal with a, a database when at, at this company I was the IT manager for. And so one time I printed out the this, the database structure and, and posted it on my office wall so I could figure out where everything was. And then I was sitting there, wow, I can map everything out this way, you know. And that yeah, was... Yeah, I like the graphic arrangement as opposed right. to just, I didn't have a list. Right. Know, and so then yeah. that kind of gave me the idea of... of doing that so i started the uh, database i think in 2006 originally and then 2007 i think is when i moved it to the brain software and i've been using the brain software since then so it's you know it it works it definitely helps keep uh, thoughts organized that way yeah you know when, when i when i put stuff on the board i try to be or you know geometry actually helps uh, organize your, your your language right your trip you know that part of the quadrivium can help you graph out your your trivium your your your, uh, your ideas your words um you know to jump back to the the social credit system i and i'm coming i'm gonna work backwards a little bit from here um you know people probably know you know elon musk recently came out with that brain chip right the neural link that brain computer interface and by the way they've got all sorts of different brain computer interfaces i i thought that was gonna be the smallest part of the book and you know you probably know Jose Manuel Rodriguez Delgado at Yale was doing that in the 60s, late 50s, early 60s. And, uh, you know, what, so that's 60 years ago, right? And so the stuff they got now is is way up there. But, you know, that's the highest level of it. Kind of what's which will feed into that, which, by the way, will, will I, you know, will link into that smart city that's right tracks your, your social credit. Um is essentially these different education technologies 
which are going to data mine your your uh, you know your biometrics and your psychometrics. Okay, and so that's in three layers essentially. One is the adaptive learning software, which is essentially looking at your cognitive behavioral stimulus response algorithms in response to uh, lessons on a on a window on a computer module. Then you have the socio-emotional learning biometric stuff, the little wearables that essentially measure uh, your affect, right? So your emotional level, your, your attention, your engagement. Some of that is facial recognition software, which looks at how, how you, what affect you have based on your different facial expressions. Others are things called galvanic skin response monitors. They're little bracelets that uh, look at electrical conductivity, heart rate, blood pressure. And then you have others that measure your EEGs, like it's one company is called BrainCo. So you wear this, you wear this, they got them in China where they've been doing it. You put them on your head. Uh, but I saw them, inter I advertised the company on one of these Fox News uh, venues. So I just, you know, just anyways, um, but it, it, it measured your EEG. And so, you know, essentially all that data, you know, is going to go into this, this big, this super AI grid, and you know that'll be part of your psychological profile. It'll get fed into this uh, social credit system, right? And so your your school system will pump straight into that. And so some people probably might be thinking, like, well, how can the schools do that? Because school records have to be FERPA laws and private, and you can't, you know, it's almost, it's almost like medical records are that sensitive. There's no way you can do that, right? But in a lot of ways, they're already doing it, right? So some of those FERPA laws are real loose. The education technology companies, right, they might not have access to certain types of data. There's three layers of it. There's the personally identifiable information. That's like your address, your name, and stuff like that. But then there's systems information data, which has to do with basically school, school database stuff. But then there's other stuff that they can they call user interaction information. So that has to do with whatever algorithms they can anonymize based on your activity. So they can still put that in your school file. And, and put it into your school record. The other problem is that there's an increase, an increase in what we call public-private partnerships in education. And that blurs the lines in between who can share what for the purposes of either improving the technology or administering some therapy to, to help the student. All right, and so you know, I'm working backwards, so it's, it might not be as lucid as I could make it otherwise, but that's the relationship between the social credit system and you know where the education technologies are kind of kind of headed in that, in that direction. Well said. While you were uh, talking, I was you know I looked up Nazi a bit ago, and and it used to say under Nazism, National German Socialist Workers Party or National Socialist German Workers Party, whichever way it goes. But I noticed in the last month or two since I showed that on screen in one of the shows, they've rewritten it and they've taken out. And let me show this on screen. They've actually taken out where it said uh, German National Socialist Workers Party. And so National Socialism here, or Nazi, National Socialism, Socialism, National so Socialism. And then in Germany and other far-right groups with similar ideas and aims. So it's a real stretch to call socialism a right-wing ideology. It's always been a left-wing ideology. But uh, it's really interesting that they took that out because, you know, when people get that it's, you know, the, the Nash, it's like the Labor Party in Great Britain or the Democratic Party here is national socialism is leftism. And when you see 
Antifa and these groups going around beating anybody who disagrees with them. These are all leftist groups. This is the foundation of what Nazism is. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out because I just I was lo- looking on on the Wikipedia page. And it's like where the heck did it go? You know, they've rewritten it in the last couple of months. Well, funny thing too is that you know another uh, parallel that you know this. So you know we look at Hegelianism being part of both socialism, uh, communism, fascism. But then, so was eugenics. Eugenics was not you know like you, you'd think eugenic. Like Hitler is the you know the pinnacle of eugenics and its you know most horrific expression historically. And um, you know the, the thing with that is the leftists were were all about it too, right? I mean, so people like you know, Huxley himself identified as like you know basically a, a labor guy. Uh, and, you know, um, and then all his buddies at the Bloomsbury group would have been people like Bertrand Russell, George Bernard Shaw, uh, John Maynard Keynes, H.G. Wells. These right. well, these are, are these considered g- liberals, right? right? Well, these guys were all tied directly with Aldous Huxley and, and uh, the Fabian yes. Socialists, etc. So let's look at uh, John Maynard Keynes. Well, he gave a speech at the British Eugenics Society right. presenting the gold medal. So right. here, I, I'm pulling it up here on the screen. Eugenics and Population Control, Fabian Society. He's a Century Club, which is a CIA front. British Eugenics Society. Uh, you know, he was tied with uh, uh, Margaret Darwin, Keynes. You know, they're married, uh, married in. But he was also tied to uh, Gordon Wasson of uh, the CIA's MKUltra subproject 58, you know. But... You look at the uh, the Fabian Society, and you get all of these people all clustered together. And you know these are who we're supposed to believe are right wingers. Of course, we see George Orwell there, H.G. Wells, Aldous Huxley. You know all of the same uh, social engineers that we you know see. Did you say George Orwell. Well, George, like, like, yeah, like, George Orwell. Like the Eric Blair, George Orwell. Yeah, that one. So here, I'll oh, I'll bring that really? back. I, I, well, see, George. Oh, or- yeah, right. That, yeah, because yeah, okay. He, he was sense. he was uh, Aldous Huxley's student. Uh, yeah, that man, I know. Yeah, yeah. Right. So he was a Fabian socialist. He, you know, claims right, he came right, out yeah. against it later on. I don't buy it, but his was more of the the physical control of the population in 1984, whereas Aldous Huxley. Uh, believe that control would be done through barbiturates and hip, uh, hypnosis and more of uh, social control. And obviously, you know, the two really more came together than anything else. And then Aldous Huxley went on to uh, be the, the head of the CIA, the, the head architect of the CIA's MKUltra program. Yeah, and he was also uh, part of the, what they called it, the, was it the planning committee, the planning group. So, you know, during that time, uh, right around the Great Depression, you know, England was was having its, you know, economic crisis, and they were trying to figure out what to do. This is the time Oswald Mosley and the British fascists are rising up, and, and Huxley was part of this committee where they sat and basically, right, you know, hung out with Parliament and stuff, and they called it planning. And what is that? It's just a neutral term. You call it fascism. You call it communism. It's essentially right. It's it's the merger of government and in the economy. It's the merger of the, the public and the private sectors. And this is essentially uh, part of what I was was talking about. Will, is leading towards you know this this uh, loose uh, 
exchange of student data. Um, you know, so to, we can jump back to where we talked about the the, the evolution or the change. Well, just just so you know, we only got a couple minutes to go here. We should probably have you back for a part two sometime soon. What do you think? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm up for it if you if you're cool with it. Yeah, yeah, for Sounds sure. Good. Okay. But, uh, you know, I want to wrap it up here at the top of the hour. So we got about three minutes to go here. Uh, why don't you uh, give out any information you want so people can reach out to you? Okay. So I got a website at schoolworldorder.info. Um, and then the, the web or the email is <clears throat> Dallas Professor T T A. O I S T professor at gmail.com. Right, so Dallas T A O I S T probably your, your audience. Knows that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. You know, if you want to get the book, you can get, you can go to the, that website and it'll take you to trying day. Uh, you know, yeah. Um, uh, you know, best to buy it from trying day. We, we, you know, Chris and I, you, know, you we, won't we autograph it for everybody like you did mine though. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I can do that. If you request, I got, I actually got some, if somebody wants maybe, uh, you know, autograph one. I think, I, I think I can do some of those. Maybe. Yeah, I can do that. <laughs> cool. I how many I can do. I, first on first year, maybe five. All right. That will say five. I do five. Well, I appreciate your time. Let's get you uh, on either, you know, sometime, you know, right before the end of the year or early next year. Uh, obviously, we only got a few weeks left here of the year. But, um, you know, I appreciate your coming on and appreciate your work. It was a good conversation tonight. And uh, I'm glad we're we're hitting the uh, the same who and what and where and when type of uh, information, right? So that's good to see. Uh, and please support the show, ladies and gentlemen. We can't do it without your support. Go to logosmedia.com and click on the donate button. You can also support through Patreon or through uh, Bitcoin. And, and because we had to stop and restart the show earlier because the screen settings were off, uh, I'll post the show notes here uh, this evening or the, uh, the show description and include uh, the, the donation information there. But greatly appreciate your support. Please also hit the super chat if it's still up there for you. And uh, anything else you would like to add before you wrap it up here, John? No, just thanks for having me on, man. It was, it was a good time, man. It was fun. Definitely. So uh, we'll talk to you again soon, and um, we'll uh, see you then. And everybody, keep warm. Hope you have a great holiday season this year, and hopefully you don't get stuck in a nasty blizzard like we did. I, I, I'd hate to see what other cities and towns looked like they got that after us. But uh, anyway, see you soon. And that looks like a good place to wrap it up. And good night, everyone.